welcome everyone to tonight's forum event. You're very welcome. Uh, the forum has been putting on events like this for the last 20 years. Um, we try to get academic philosophers and other interesting people to come and give public lectures. They're always, or almost always, free, uh, thanks to the generosity of our donors um, and the great support we get from the LSE events team. Uh, in the past, we've been a pretty much London-centric operation, but very recently, our new website has gone live, and we have a blog. So if a once-a-week talk isn't quite enough to scratch your philosophical itch, do check out the blog, and, and hopefully you'll enjoy what you find there as well. Uh, if you could turn your phones onto silent, that would be fantastic, but don't feel the need to turn them off. You're more than welcome to live-tweet the event. We have our very own dedicated hashtag um, that you can use. Um, we also um, we're recording this for the podcast, so um, if you decide to ask a question, if you could just wait for the roving mic to find you so that your voice is picked up for the recording, that would be fantastic. Uh, I don't think there's anything else for me to say uh, except to hand over to our chair for the evening. Thanks a million for coming. Thank you. Uh, my name is Madeleine Sumption, and I'm the director of the Migration Observatory at the University of Oxford, and I'm really delighted to be uh, chairing this uh, very interesting debate uh, tonight on whether there is a right to migrate. Um, now, I should start by saying that this is an extraordinarily well-timed discussion, as I'm sure many of you know. There's been real increase in interest in issues about migration over the last few weeks, um, both because of the, the refugee crisis in Europe, um, but also in the UK, the continued uh, high levels of, of net migration, and a, a debate about, uh, about how that should be dealt with uh, from a, a policy perspective. In the data from Ipsos Mori last month, 56% of uh, members of the UK public who were surveyed said they cited immigration as among the top issues facing the UK, which is the highest it's ever been and, and higher by some distance than any other of the issues that, that people cite. Um, I think another reason that the timing of this debate about the ethics of migration is good is that over the last few weeks there's, there's been something of a shift in some of the questions that are being dealt with in the debate. And um, if you think about the UK debate in particular, it's, it's one that has traditionally focused on um, kind of pragmatic ish issues, things like um, what are the economic interests of the UK, what are the you know, social and cultural impacts of migration, and, and uh, what type of migration policy makes most sense for assuring standards of living for people in the UK. Now, one of the things that uh, has become much more salient over the last few weeks with the refugee crisis in particular is uh, some of the ethical questions about what the obligations of governments are, both to migrants and refugees themselves, and also the obligations of governments to each other. So what we're going to do in the debate tonight is, is examine some of the major questions in the ethics of migration, uh, specifically whether there is a right to migrate. Now, from an analytical perspective, it's actually a little bit easier to turn this question around um, because uh, a lot of people generally agree that individuals have a right to leave their country of origin. What's much more difficult question is whether the places that they want to go to have a right to exclude them. Now, this might seem like a question with relatively limited practical application um, because uh, politically the right of governments to select the people who come to their country is, is not questioned. 
and um, the idea that uh, a country like the UK or any other country in Europe might actually implement a completely open borders regime is pretty outlandish. But um, it's, what I think is interesting about these questions is that the, uh, some of the, the basic ethical issues in the debate do have a lot of uh, <coughs> relevance to everyday questions in, in policymaking. Things like, for example... Um, on what basis should the government decide whether people are able to, to come to the country? What should be the role of economic factors compared to other considerations like, for example, um, family unity or fairness? That's a debate that's um, been uh, very prominent in the last uh, couple of years with the UK's policy on uh, income thresholds for family migration, for example. Um, another set of issues that comes up a lot uh, is the, uh, the question of how we weigh up the interests of, of different groups in a context where different people have very different uh, interests and are affected by immigration in, in different ways. Now, we have an excellent panel of people here to, to discuss this tonight. Uh, we have on my left is uh, Professor Matthew Gibney, who is a Professor of Politics and Forced Migration at the University of Oxford. Uh, we then have Emily Degan, who is the social affairs editor at The De Independent and has written extensively about migration. Um, and then on her left is Chris Bertram, who is a professor of social and political philosophy at the University of Bristol. Now, uh, what we're going to do is divide this into two sections. We're going to start uh, with some of the general questions of discussion, looking at migration as a whole. And uh, then in the second half, I want to focus particularly on uh, issues around the, the refugee crisis and obligations <coughs> towards refugees in particular. So I want to start by asking, um, asking all of you uh, your basic perspective on the question of the debate. Do you think that governments have a right to <coughs> exclude people who want to migrate? Um, and, uh, and on what basis? Matthew. Okay. Um, thank you very much. Thank you for having me here. It's great to see so many people here. Um, I'm not surprised because it's such a big issue at the moment, but I am pleased to see so many. Um, it's, I think the question of the right to exclude and the boundaries and where it applies and where it ends is a very difficult one, and it has been racking my brains um, a lot lately. And I must say, I don't have, and maybe this is a, a good way to start, I don't have a definitive answer to that question um, about whether states have the right to exclude, except to say that I think, at a minimum, um, states um, have the right um, to protect the key goods which they exist to uh, bring about. And by that, I mean they have the right to exclude when social stability is uh, threatened, when uh, civil and human rights within the state are threatened, when democracy in the state is threatened, and arguably as well when communal solidarity is uh, threatened. Now, um, there are big questions there about what constitutes a threat, and there are big questions and disagreement amongst different actors as to um, when those aspects of the state are threatened. Um, but I think they're just the kinds of discussions that we need to have. And uh, in practice, I think that states should have a fair bit of latitude to judge uh, when um, those key goods that the state provides are threatened, and indeed if they are, by um, immigration. Um, 
I also want to say that that's the minimal grounds of exclusion, when there's a severe threat to those goods. And I happen to think a severe threat to those goods doesn't come around all the time, and it certainly doesn't come around very often in the current international regime with very tightly restrictive policies. States are also bound by a range of obligations too, which um, gives them, empowers them to be legitimate, I think, in calling upon those threats. And two key elements of those obligations, I would say, are uh, the uh, duty to admit refugees, a duty that, that flows from both international humanitarian duties and from membership in um, international society. And uh, in particular, in relation to liberal democratic states, um, the duty not to use invidious forms of discrimination in making decisions on entrance policy. And a very good example, certainly not the only one, are considerations like race and gender and religion. So, Thank you. Emily? Great. So um, I suppose for me, the, the idea of completely open borders, you know, it's an attractive and, and romantic one in theory. Um, and the idealist in me uh, loves, loves the idea that you know, anyone could move anywhere you know, to, to improve their life chances or just to, to live in a place that's better suited to them. Um, but I do think this is one of those areas where the idea could be more attractive than the reality. Um, you know, what, would, what would the world look like if all nations suddenly dropped their borders? Um, I'm, I'm not a big fan of nationalism, uh, but I think we have to acknowledge that for many people around the world, that sense of belonging to a country and a community... Um, is something they would fight to defend. And, and wouldn't open borders fairly quickly lead to multiple new conflicts? Um, so one of the unfortunate consequences might be more racism, more small-mindedness, and more of a hostile welcome uh, for, for migrants in, in the countries that face the biggest increase in new arrivals. Uh, it might actually make the world an uglier place, even though it seems like a, a lovely I ideal. Um, you know, if you look at Britain, for example... Um, open borders within the EU has created practical and social problems for migrants when the places they move to are unprepared to welcome them. Now, I'm a, a big fan of the EU. I, I, uh, you know, I, I think it's, it's mostly worked brilliantly, but I think it's easy in London, um, a city that's full of people from around the world and has been for centuries, um, to forget the strength of feeling about this you know, it, it, elsewhere in Britain. Um, so last year, researching my book, I spent a lot of time in Boston, in Lincolnshire. Um, and there, EU migrants make up around a third of the population. It's the highest proportion of EU migrants anywhere in the country. Um, and a decade ago, things looked really different in that town. Um, actually, they were pretty bad. Um, the high street had loads of closed shops. Um, you know, it was, it was a pretty forgotten outpost of Britain. It seemed better days. So it certainly wasn't better before they came. In fact, I'd, I'd argue economically it was much worse. Um, but, uh, you know, without these new arrivals from Poland, from, from Latvia, from Lithuania, I reckon the local maternity unit, for example, would have closed long ago. Uh, the schools would not have the same amount of funding, um, and it would just be, a, a, you know, a pretty empty place. But, but unfortunately, economic arguments just don't work there. Um, and what's happened is you've got a, a quite a frightening place um, in, in terms of public opinion. So the EDL um, is gr growing in support there. You've got... Uh, a, lot of, a lot of divisions in that town. And in fact, it, at times it feels like two towns in one. You've got sections, whole streets in fact, where a lot of the British people who, 
who have lived in that town for generations won't go and, and vice versa. Uh, and it's a, really, it's, a, it's a really ugly scene to see and it's very depressing. Um, and I've, I suppose, unfortunately, that can be, I, I would argue that can be what happens if not enough planning is put into a, a large-scale uh, movement of people and, and if communities aren't prepared or invested in to prepare for those arrivals. Um, and I suppose, so that experience has made me question what I previously felt about open borders because uh, going back on the train to Boston pretty much every month for, for quite a while, I, my heart used to sink when I got into the station because it is, it's such an unpleasant atmosphere. You know, people just aren't talking to each other. Um, and so... You know, I wouldn't agree with what Theresa May said today, for example, that, that high levels of migration make cohesion impossible. I think that was a, a, an awful <laughs> thing to say. But I, 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 and I also, actually, for what it's worth, would say that migration to Britain at the moment isn't currently unmanageably high. Um, but in an imperfect world, having some controls on immigration, you know, even if that's just making sure that all migrants aren't focused you know, in one town or in one country can sometimes be the most humane answer if it means that you mitigate rampant xenophobia and community divisions that might otherwise take root. So. Thanks. Chris? So my starting point on this is really that, that states are um, extraordinarily coercive entities. Um, they subject people to force, violence, punishment, threat of violence and so on. Now, in our day-to-day -day lives, we accept this to some extent because that coercion is mutual. We're all subject to a law that's, that applies to all of us. So that coercion is, to some extent, mutually beneficial. But we have a very different case where it comes to outsiders, people who are non-members of the community, non-citizens. They're subject to coercion at the border. They're subject to exclusion. Um, they're subject to the discretionary choice of the state to admit them or not to admit them. And that coercive exclusion isn't something that's mutually beneficial. It's carried out unilaterally against them. Now, you and I don't have the right to use coercion, force, and violence against one another to pursue our private ends. And I think that individuals banded together, associated in states, don't have that right either vis-a-vis non-members. So that's a kind of starting, starting point. Then we remember that this act, these acts of coercive exclusion also um, they expose some people to enormous risks of harm. They um, entrench and uh, embed in place um, great inequalities of opportunity across the planet. So if you're born in Burundi, say, on average you have much worse life chances than someone born in Belgium. Now, I'm not saying that it's always wrong for states to exclude. But what I am saying is that a simple unilateral discretionary right of states to exclude can't be justified. Rather, a regime under which states exclude or not, an international migration regime, has to be justifiable from the point of view of everyone. And there are a lot of people who I think, if they were 
as it were, placed behind the proverbial Rawlsian veil of ignorance, if they could pick their, their nationality out of a hat but didn't know what it was going to be, there are many people who would reject the current discretionary right of states to exclude because of the awful consequences that it has for some people. It locks some people into violent and oppressive regimes, into very poor regimes. It cuts thousands and thousands of people off from family members, and it limits in terrible ways the opportunities of many, many people across the planet. Now, what would a regime justified from an impartial perspective look like? Would it be an open borders regime? Well, not necessarily, I think. Perhaps um, we can input into that conversation about impartial justification um, considerations about the value of communities, um, the values of self-determination and association, but I don't think that we can accept that states can do just what they like, which is pretty much um, the state of affairs now, albeit that states recognize some exceptions to that. They recognize some obligations towards refugees, for example, but those are obligations that they've entered into voluntarily and, and reserve the right always to tear up and walk away from. Now, in the current world as we find it, that that of course, we're a long way from having a just and impartial migration regime um, that applies to all states. And so the question arises, well, since we're not in that world, we're in this world, well, what goes? What should be allowed? Uh, and I think um, roughly two things. One is, I think states have a duty to mitigate some of the worst consequences of the current global migration regime. And second, they have to work in good faith to put in place international institutions that would be more just. And I think if they fail in those two tasks, then they lose the moral right to exclude. So in order to maintain any kind of control, they have to work towards a more just international order. Thanks. So I want to pick up on uh, one of the, th the things you mentioned um, about the, you know, the different um, things that we value when thinking about, about migration regimes. And um, I'll talk about kind of what role um, public opinion plays in, in what makes a fair migration regime. Mm. We, I mean, we live in a democracy, and uh, in the UK, we live in a democracy where the majority of people want to reduce migration, many of them considerably. How do we, how do we weigh up the interests of, of these different groups, of the people who, who want uh, perhaps uh, quite significant restrictions on migration and the people who have a lot at stake and want to move? Okay, so, the, the, I mean, there's two, there's two aspects to that question. I think there's a, an immediate kind of pragmatic political question. It's just a kind of political fact of life that we live in a democracy um, and that people have those strong opinions and somehow we have to deal with that fact. And so and that puts a significant, you know, significant obstacles in the way of moving towards a more just regime as I would see it. At the same time, I, mean, I think 
just as actions by individuals um, are, are, or at least ought to be, limited by considerations of justice, I think decisions by democratic collectives, which are, after all, just associations of people, ought to be limited by considerations of justice. So democracies can't just decide what they like. Um, They have to be um, restricted. They have to accept injustice restrictions um, on on grounds, say, of human rights. And I think, you know, the, the contours of a juster migration regime ought to limit what it's legitimate for democratic states to do. Yeah, I mean, one thing I would say on that is I think one of the things that's slightly missing from politics at times at the minute is a bit of moral courage to steer public opinion when, when it seems like it may be driven by, uh, you know, by kind of racism or bigotry. Um, so, for example, you know, when it was quite interesting, and I know we're coming on to refugees later, but just very briefly on, on the point of, of language used by ministers, you know, think of what... Uh, David Cameron and the Foreign Minister, you know, they both they use words like swarm and marauding to describe refugees at Calais, um, and, they, and then a few weeks later, suddenly we're saying, oh, actually, maybe we'll take um, maybe we'll take 20,000 people. Um, but you know, they were they weren't taking the sort of moral courage to try and steer opinion where they could see that there was something right to be done. Um, and I think that's something, you know, yes. you're representing the people, therefore you should take their views into account. But I also think there can be times when, you know, governments governments should try and do what's right and try and help bring the public with them rather than just accepting the lowest common view. I agree with what she said. Um, (laughs) um, But I do, and um, that's right. And I think that one... I think it's fair enough, actually, to kind of conceptualise this as a duty for government officials too, that in the sense if, if, if they can identify and they should be able to if they have any kind of moral faculty, a gap between sometimes what the public wants and what justice demands, then one would expect political leaders to try to work on the public to try to bridge that gap in some ways. They would have a duty to try to, say, in terms of asylum, which is a good example, to increase the political space with which, um, within which one could um, have more um, acceptable asylum policies. But what we've seen, particularly in this country, we could point to others where perhaps that's been less true, like Germany in recent years, but particularly in this country over the last 15 years, is politicians actively working to shrink the space of um, asylum by both kowtowing and um, uh, to, um, to the nastier aspects of public opinion, but also never um, um, challenging it um, as well and riding on it in some ways. Some would say whipping up some of the hostility there. And I think that, I, I mean, that is kind of particularly egregious from an ethical point of view. They cannot um, uh, say that they are just victims of public opinion unless they are actively trying to shape that public opinion in some ways. Perhaps perhaps it's very difficult to shape. I don't deny that. But what we're not seeing is politicians trying to shape it in that kind of way. And I think that that is a plausible moral demand to make of states, that they actually try to put the other side of the story here. 
Now, I want to uh, come back to something. You raised an important point about the, um, the criteria on which it is uh, morally acceptable to, to select, and you uh, brought up the, the case of race, for mm. example. Um, and I wanted to, uh, to dig into this a little bit more because there, you know, there are currently many different criteria that governments do use. Um, uh, for example, the economic, the perceived economic benefits of a particular group, um, various <coughs> measures of, of the need, um, and or um, uh, perceptions about which groups will be most ready to, to integrate um, or which, who will be most law-abiding. It's, quite, it's very common for, for countries to have criminal, uh, criminal background checks, for example. So... I wanted to ask, and what do you think, in terms of what types, assuming that the governments do have the right to exclude some people, or at least that they're going to do so anyway, um, what, are, what would be a more or less fair migration regime in terms of the criteria that, that they're using? Well, it probably won't surprise you as someone that's worked a lot on forced migration that I would say need is one of the most, it, 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 I mean, is perhaps the key um, criterion here, or um, at least one of them. Um, a response that places refugees, people who, if they're not granted admission to the state, would face persecution or the, or, um, or the violation of their um, fundamental <coughs> human rights, that they should have at least some kind of priority in um, entrance decisions if we're going to, um, I suppose, treat entrance as a scarce category and if we're going to allow states some discretion uh, to make entrance decisions. Another um, uh, uh, category that I would raise raise as being very morally important would be family migration as well. The right of families to be together. The, um, The right of people that have been admitted to the state to be joined by their families in these circumstances. Now, I mean, we see that because... um, uh, being with one's family uh, has a great... Uh, I mean, is, families can be a pain, I admit. But um, uh, they're often essential, absolutely essential to us living any kind of meaningful life whatsoever. And so to deprive people of being with their spouses, with their children, with their immediate family and perhaps beyond that um, seems like a cruel um, act. And yet it's not an act that is just a hypothetical one. Even though most, uh, most states have family reunion policies, again, in recent years in the UK, uh, the, uh, the Cameron government and I think the Labor government started before that, um, have put restrictions on the ability of spouses of citizens to come, financial limits on that. And I think that ethically that is a, a very, very dubious act as well, just because of the centrality of families to people's lives. When, um, I would add um, another dimension to this, and it is another refugee one too, I think that states have responsibilities um, potentially in uh, entrance, certainly in terms of refugees, to those refugees they have harmed, to those who they're responsible for making refugees. There's a lot of causal debate about which uh, refugees that is for particular states. You could make arguments in relation to Iraq and the UK and the US. You could make arguments in relation to uh, Libya as well, if you wanted to as well. But there are three different uh, forms of criteria, Uh, just basic refugees and basic need there, families, the right of families 
to be together, avoiding cruelty in um, interest decisions and responsibility for harm. When it comes to those other characteristics, that is where I would give states a bit more of an open hand mm -hmm. to uh, decide entrance on the basis of the economic needs of the state and uh, factors such as integration, uh, which are, seem plausible, pragmatic considerations. Emily? I was going to say, I mean, I would um, I'd broadly agree with lots of those points, I mean, particularly that we've seen this rise of Skype families, which is, you know, marriage is essentially split up where one parent um, is stuck in another country um, and their kids are being brought up in a one-parent family just because they're not, they, don't, they happen not to pass, sometimes by only a few hundred pounds, not to pass this arbitrary threshold that's been set. Um, but I, I suppose I would say I, I do have sympathy with countries choosing based on skills that are needed. You know, if you've got a huge shortage of nurses, I think, you know, I think there's a, a strong argument to say, yeah, okay, let's, let's let in lots of nurses. Um, but, um, but I also think, you know, it's, I, I'm worried by the idea of, for example, you know, testing somebody's ability to integrate, um, you know, in advance. You know, what would that equate to? You know, would we end up with, you know, a situation as in France where suddenly we're saying, you know, you can't, you can't live here if you're wearing a face veil or, you know, these sorts of issues. So I think measuring integration is, I, I don't really see how that can work. I suppose the criteria of passing a citizenship test, for example, might be, might be how that was measured, but I think it's quite, it sets a slightly worrying tone for me, that, that idea. Um, but yeah, anyway. So I, I, perhaps unsurprisingly, agree with everything um, <laughs> my two co-panellists have said. So this, with this amount of agreement, we, perhaps we won't have much of a debate. Um, but I just add, I mean, I think that, that in, in, in relation to um, taking in refugees, we've seen in the last few weeks a number of states um, seek to um, discriminate um, among refugees um, in various ways, but one of the most invidious ways they sought to do this is to say, well, we'll take Christian refugees from Syria um, and we won't take Muslims um, on various grounds. Now, I think, um, and so Canada has done that, I think Slovakia has talked about doing that, and maybe one or two other states um, have, have Canada may, may not have done it, but the Harper government has raised it, I think, as part of the general election campaign that they might do that. Um, now, we're in the UK, so we are in a country with an established religion, technically, but to all intents and purposes, the liberal democratic states that we live in don't have and shouldn't have an opinion about matters of faith, matters of religion, and so on. They should be, broadly speaking, neutral on that question. They should keep out of that question. So, and we have people who are in you know, perfectly good standing, citizens of this country and citizens of other liberal democratic states who come from all kinds of different faiths and none. And when the state seeks to discriminate amongst incomers on, say, religious grounds like that, um, I think it undermines the equality that ought to exist the equality and the equal respect that ought to exist among existing citizens. So I think that's, that, that kind of discrimination definitely is none. Thanks. Go ahead. I mean, on that, Chris, is it just that it kind of undermines the citizen relation, or is there something unjust about 
from the perspective of the immigrant as well is an injustice, is an injustice, injustice being done to the immigrant too. Well, I think in the, in the case of, um, perhaps I need to think it through more, but in the case of, the, the, of refugees, um, we're dealing, as you said, with cases, um, cases that are based on need. And then to, 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 to start to discriminate amongst the needy on grounds of you know, religious commitment mm. and, you know, or, or race or any of those other things, that strikes me as you know, extremely uh, unpleasant. Yeah. I mean, I suppose I would say that... I mean, one could say that those refugees as well that were not chosen in that circumstance because they were the wrong religion would, could rightly feel that they were treated unjustly, that they were slighted on the basis of some ascriptive characteristic, which um, a state had no right to make a decision on the basis of in terms of public policy, particularly a liberal democratic state, for the reasons you said. Would you discriminate against the needy um, for economic reasons? And this is a conversation that's come up um, on occasion about whether, you know, if governments have um, limits on the number of refugees they're willing to take, might they be able to select some of the people who meet the uh, definition of a refugee but also have skills that would be considered beneficial? Or would you prefer to keep a complete separation between, between the need and the, the benefit? Well, I think I'd, um, perhaps I'd turn that upside down slightly. I mean, I would, um, I would like to keep the, the question of you know, skills migration and refugee admission separate, but insofar as we have a program, say, for um, refugee resettlement, then we ought to focus on the people who are in the worst position, the people who have least, the people who perhaps you know, are not economically valuable to the incoming state, but are more needy than perhaps some other refugees. So I think it works the other way, insofar as there ought to be discrimination among the needy, it should favour those with least um, rather than those who already have most. Now, I'm going to, um, since this has been quite a harmonious discussion, I'm going to see if the audience can generate some conflict on the, on the panel uh, with some, some questions. Uh, we're going to, so we're going to have some questions now, and then we'll, there will be a chance for more questions later. I would encourage the next half of our discussion is going to be about refugee issues in particular. So I would encourage you to ask questions uh, about migration in general and then hold your questions about refugees for, for the next half. Um, I'm told that there are some microphones, so raise your hand if you have a question. There's one in the middle there. And please do introduce yourself um, before you ask your question. Hi, I'm Sigurd. I'm a law student here. Um, it's great to see my old professor again and uh, all the, the panelists. You raised some really interesting points. Um, my question is about the legitimacy of the uh, modern liberal democratic state. So um, it was mentioned that states have the right to protect from severe threats, uh, key goods like communal solidarity. Um, and I'd remark that that's a concept that's socially and politically constructed. Um, which leads me to wonder whether you would conceive the right to migrate um, as able to reinforce or fortify the political legitimacy and maybe even sovereignty of the liberal democratic state. Thanks. 
Um, we're going to take a couple of, of questions and then we'll um, answer them together. Do we have one over here on the right, please? Hi, uh, Vedant Kumar. I'm actually um, a disillusioned civil servant at the moment. Um, and I've just got um, one question based on, I suppose, what David Cameron's been saying in the news recently about uh, differentiating between um, economic migrants and refugees. And perhaps you've touched on this already, and maybe I just didn't get it, but I was um, wondering if you would draw that distinction, because in some cases, obviously, economic migrants have as much of a threat to their livelihood as do refugees fleeing persecution. Mm -hmm. Do we have a third question uh, here at the front? My name is Paul Friedman. Um, once migrants arrive, there are oftentimes limitations on what they can do. Can they work? Can they send their children to school? Can they get driver's licenses? I would be curious um, if we could extend this to after they arrive, what should they be allowed to do? So <laughs> who wants to volunteer to uh, address some of those uh, first? We have, well, we have the distinction between economics and migrants and, uh, economic migrants and refugees, which we've touched upon uh, a little bit. Should we start with that question? Okay, so, so uh, I mean, I think we, we, we may come on to this quite a bit more in, in the second half, I suspect. Um, the, I mean, the, the, there is a legal definition of um, who is a refugee that's in the, the 1951 convention, uh, people who have a well-founded fear of persecution on various grounds, um, and then there are a whole bunch of people whose objective situation may be just as bad as those people, but who somehow aren't captured by the <coughs> Refugee Convention. Um, some of those may be people you know, fleeing extreme poverty, although typically economic migrants aren't those who in the most extreme poverty. But they may also be people who are fleeing a range of um, otherwise horrible situations. So people moving north you know, through Mexico to escape Central American countries may be um, maybe fleeing circumstances of great personal insecurity, organized crime, and so on. Um, I don't think there's a big moral difference between those categories. So would you say states have a similar obligation to economic migrants of, of those categories? Um, well, um, I think it's problematic whether you class some of those people as economic migrants, but where people's objective situation is as desperate... Um, uh, as those of refugees and where their home states are un unable to guarantee them you know, the, their basic needs, human rights and so on, I would say yes. Emily? Yeah, I mean, I, I, think, I think that one of the problems is, is it, it's, it's an imperfect system we have, but, but actually offering, you know, offering refugee status to people in those sort of very extreme circumstances is something that brilliantly we have managed to sort of you know, introducing countries all over the world. And I think if you introduced economic migration into that, into that criteria, as in somebody, you know, and there are you know, people all over the world in this situation where the economy of their country means that they have very little to live on, that their lives are in danger for that reason. But unfortunately, if, we, if you introduced, if you muddied the waters with that, you might end up with a situation where there was a, a backlash against, you know, allowing in refugees at all. And I think it's sort of, it's one of those imperfect but 
you know, good systems that we've, we've found to actually help people in a time of crisis. So. Good. We've got disagreement, um, <laughs> I think, a bit. Because I don't... I mean, I do think that um, if you look at any normative theorist that has attempted to define who a refugee is, they never hit upon the 1951 Refugee Convention. And there's a reason. Because that 1951 Convention... Um, uh, refugee definition was written primarily for states to respond to a very specific situation. The situation of people persecuted for um, various reasons coming from totalitarian regimes effectively. What almost all normative theorists end up doing is bringing human rights back into the picture. The Refugee Convention definition is basically about not only being persecuted, which means you're particularly targeted, but also only for a specific set of reasons, such as you know, um, political opinion, membership of a particular social group, and a range of others. And, and law scholars have really tried to expand that in practice and with some success, but they're still ultimately hamstrung by a conception of a refugee that is far narrower than even what the public thinks a refugee is. The public thinks most people fleeing generalised violence in uh, Syria and um, other countries are refugees, and sometimes they are, but sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're just people fleeing generalised forms of violence and wouldn't actually fit into the 1951 Convention definition. Now, it seems to me that... Uh, when it comes to economic migrants, when you're talking about the very extreme situation you are about, when one's <coughs> subsistence is under threat, when one um, is really in a very dire situation such that one cannot reasonably go on living in that particular country, you're, what you're talking about is your economic state of affairs amount, um, amounting to a human rights violation. And in those circumstances... I think you are justified both in seeking a form of asylum and being granted it. Now, there's a problem, of course. This, this does lead to us expanding the idea of who is deserving protection at a time when states are trying to uh, constrain it. Um, and it is a problem. Um, but I think that the way around it is really perhaps to encourage states to try to do more in situ to improve people's lot, perhaps consider this as part of broader issues of global justice, rather than to criticise people that get on the move because no one will help, help them where they are. There's still a distinction between economic migrants and refugees to be drawn. Australians that come and teach at Oxford and places like that are clearly economic migrants. <laughs> but, you know, the distinction between these groups is very subtle when they actually meet in the middle. And it's normatively, I think, it doesn't really make much sense. Now, what about the, this question about uh, the rights of people after they arrive? Now, because in practice, governments um, impose uh, quite a lot of, of, of different uh, requirements and restrictions on what people can do um, in terms of whether that's, you know, whether they can bring a spouse with them, um, 
to in the case of, of some cases, you know, whether they are able to open a bank account or get a driving license if we're talking about people who are here without legal authorization. Um, wh- where do you stand on those issues? What, is, is there a, um, you know, what should governments, are there things that governments should always allow people to do or does the government have some latitude to, to restrict those rights in selective ways? Well, that's, that's a difficult one. If we're talking about people who've come here um, to seek asylum um, in the first instance, they, I mean, the current state of affairs is that, that those people are not allowed to, to work until their claim is determined. That, that hasn't always been the case, and it's not the case in all states. Uh, and it leads to um, a rather kind of toxic discourse around asylum, where people talk about asylum seekers you know, taking benefits and sponging and all the rest of it, uh, when very many of them would be perfectly willing and able to work and would like to make a contribution. Uh, and I think it's, it's unjust of states to deprive them of that opportunity to make a contribution um, prior to the determination of, their, uh, of their, their, their refugee claim. So that's one set of issues. Um, there's another set of issues around, um, well, that's going to be coming up in quite a big way in the near future around the um, 2015 immigration bill, which introduces all kinds of further restrictions. You mentioned um, driving licenses, um, but there are, um, obviously, there's the the, um, restriction on the ability of people who are in the country without authorization to rent houses and, 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 and so on and so forth. Um, I think it's quite difficult to attack some of these issues in the abstract. What I would say is that you know, the, I mean, the, there's this popular image of the so-called you know, illegal immigrant, and that is the person who is you know, um, walking through the Channel Tunnel or on a lorry or whatever. But the vast majority of people who are kind of roughly in that category are people whose immigration status has become you know, uncertain um, for a variety of reasons, often due to kind of terribly poor and bad decision-making by governments, by, by the Home Office in particular. And um, a lot of those people stand to be uh, deprived of their homes and their livelihoods um, without essentially good reason. Yeah, I mean, I'd echo a lot, a lot of that, especially given some of the huge delays at the Home Office. If somebody's sort of trapped in that limbo land in the system before they get, I mean, for example, asylum or, or any other decision on their immigration case, I don't see how it helps the economy or how it helps integration to stop them from working. Um, I think it's, I think it, 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 as you say, it fosters those divisions in society. So I think we, I think we need to be really careful on, on limiting what, what migrants can do. I think it makes sense to try and, make their lives as, as similar to our own if we really want to have an integrated society as, as is possible. I mean, yeah. Now, if I were a spokesman for the Home Office, yeah. I might uh, raise um, at this point that, you know, that um, the, one of the reasons that asylum seekers are not allowed to work is because of the concern that this will be um, a magnet, that people will come and they know that it's going to take some time for their claim to be processed, um, but they get to work in, in the meantime. Now, empirically, it's really difficult to know to what extent that's the case. Given that 
uncertainty? I mean, is it, is it a justified mechanism to say, you know, we think that it could well be a magnet, therefore, the, you know, the costs, this is just one of the costs that we have to accept? I just think, just, just briefly on that one, I just think that that, you know, it doesn't take into account why people seek asylum, which if you're seeking asylum, you know, we have to, we have to continue to take it on... You know, I don't think we should be so cynical that we believe somebody is claiming asylum for economic reasons. Somebody's claiming asylum because they want to live in a safe place. Denying them the dig- dignity of having a job just seems totally counterintuitive to me. I, don't, I, just, I just don't buy that, they're, that you know, knowing that they could work a few months sooner would make any difference at all. And, I mean, there I would say that the government is also obliged to look at the consequences of that kind of policy in terms of the general public response to asylum seekers and uh, refugees. If not allowing people to work really um, does make it much easier to paint them as just sponges and feed into a very kind of negative discourse, then I think one's coming, I mean, one would come back to my issue that the government at least has some kind of duty, I think, to create an environment that is welcoming of refugees. But it seems to me in that situation, the government's having it both ways. I mean, it wants to place itself this restriction on the right to work, but then it also wants to portray people as relying on welfare at the same time. So it's kind of creating a context where there's a lot of hostility and the government's at the centre of doing that. I would just say that I think how we respond to the rights people have within the state... um, um, Uh, when they arrive, I mean, there are some basic things that everyone should have, such as the right to emergency medical treatment, for example, maybe the the right to legal aid if convicted of a crime and a whole range of other things like that. But it does vary, I think, depending on the group that have arrived and the terms on which they enter, which can be just. I mean, I don't think... I I mean, I think it's fair enough to say students... This is the wrong audience to say it, but uh, that students should have no recourse to the public funds, for example, for their period here. They should be able to support themselves um, while they're here. Um, so, uh, because they've come freely under those circumstances and they're not necessarily a vulnerable Thanks. I'm going to take uh, one more round of questions. Do we um, have volunteers? Yes, up here on the, uh, just on the right, sorry, on the left of the right-hand aisle, two-thirds of the way up. Hello, I'm Laios. I'm from Peru, and I'm studying here at LSE, so I'm kind of a migrant myself. <laughs> um, I think, I don't know all of you think the same, um, but uh, we're kind of deviating for, from the main issue here, and that's the normative question of should we, as, as, a, as a human being in a, in a globalized world, have the right to migrate? And I ask you this question because I don't know conceptually what's the difference between this question and a question we could have posted ourselves in 1950s. For example, should women have the right to vote? Or, so, or should uh, black people uh, live, have equal rights as white people in Alabama in America in the 60s? Isn't, isn't this that kind of question? That's what I would like to hear from you. Right. 
Hey, my name is Sven. Uh, I'm a PhD student over at King's working on global justice. And uh, I have a question on the economic terms. So basically, it seems the predominant economic belief is that open borders would increase um, world GDP tremendously. So um, I don't want to discuss numbers, but granted for the sake of argument that we, for example, could double world GDP just by pushing a red button and open all, or open all borders. Do you think any of the reasons you brought forward, like nationhood or um, community, are sufficient to end this kind of misery in the world and poverty and economic dep like depression? Um, over here in the middle. Hi, um, I'm Colin. I go to here at LSE. Um, in light of like the recent news stories about migrants who, on their way to their final destination, have died or faced other severe hardship, what responsibility should the state have to facilitate the safety of refugees as they migrate? Okay, three very different questions. Um, well, just on the question of doubling of GDP, um, sorry, it was your question, right? Um, I'd want to know something about the distribution of D GDP as well, apart from its doubling. Make sure its benefits were not just felt by a small number of individuals. I assume that you think doubling of everyone's GDP is that right under those circumstances? Well, we could assume that it just makes. Everything. Well, it seems safe to assume that it makes a vast majority better off, right? It, that seems uncontroversial to claim, or just granted for the sake of this discussion, maybe. Well, the first thing is, I mean, I mean, obviously, it would make a big political difference, uh, potentially, if one, um, if that was true, and one could convince people. So, the political constraints on on um, moving towards more open borders would be less there. I think also, I would just um, say. Um, that it would, I mean, it would introduce some considerations, some consequences that would have to be factored into um, justifying, um, I, I mean, that restrictions would have to be balanced against. So, yes, I think it would, it would make a difference. Um, you, I mean, it would also make a difference in um, another way, too, come to think of it as well, that potentially, and I say potentially because we know that um, uh, migration often... Um, Migration pressures often rise with um, rising living standards. It may also construct the basis of an argument that fewer people might move under circumstances of open borders than we think they would, which is one of the um, uh, empirical unknowns here. We don't really know what would happen in a world of open borders. Uh, but if living standards across the world would rise, then at least over the long term, perhaps, we could get to a situation where... Um, you know, where we have open borders, but we don't have mass movements of people, as in, uh, I mean, for example, as has been the case for a long time until recently in the EU. Emily? Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose just briefly, I think it's, uh, you know, in that ideal, in that ideal scenario, it's, it's obviously, it's, it's economically unarguable. If that's the model that they've worked out, that sounds very impressive. But I, I, I guess... What I was saying was that I think there are a lot of tensions that maybe people wouldn't think of automatically, um, you know, and that you, you just might end up with, with some very, very, you know, for, for quite a long time, I think, I would imagine, you'd have 
these kind of community tensions, potentially, you know, global conflict, actually, um, that, that perhaps you might not think of when you're just thinking purely in, in those economic terms. Chris, did you want to come in on either the... Just um, on this, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, so it may, may be a slightly um, awkward at the London School of Economics to cast doubt on the predictive powers of economists. Um, but, um, I, I mean, I've seen these, I've seen these studies. You know, Michael Clemens, in particular, has come out with these, these kind of claims. Um, but we really don't know over kind of the, the medium to long term what the dynamic effects um, would be of, of opening borders on, on economics. We can, we can construct a model which has various conclusions, um, but that might play out very differently in the real world. I mean, I, I think, you know, if one's arguing for, um, <coughs> one's arguing for, for freer migration, um, then uh, one's really on safer ground uh, looking at, you know, people's rights and opportunities, um, those kind of considerations, um, issues to do with people's freedom, connection with families and so on, rather than relying upon um, slightly controversial questions about economic benefit. Um, I don't think that they, that they have the, the, the requisite degree of certainty. Does anyone want to comment on the, um, one of the other questions? What about the, the do we have responsibility for the safety of people who are trying to get to the territory? Uh, well, yes, I think we do. Um, what we've seen um, over the past few years, and it's been you know, really intensified this, this summer, we've got this, we've got this cycle going on, haven't we, um, where um, people trying to move to, um, to move to Europe, but also to move to other states like you know, Australia or to America, um, take ever greater risks, put themselves in, in great harm because of the measures that have been taken to exclude them by states. States are trying to stop them getting to the territory, perhaps trying to stop them from, from claiming asylum under the terms of the 1951 Convention. Um, so they place these barriers in their way, physical barriers, carrier sanctions, visa restrictions, and so on, so people are driven to take more and more dangerous routes, either across the Mediterranean or uh, across the Arizona Desert or whatever. Um, and then when this happens the response of our politicians is to blame the smugglers and traffickers and to call for ever-increased security, higher walls and fences, um, Donald Trump recently calling for higher fences and so on. Um, well, the effect of that is just to intensify the cycle again. Um, it, it means that people will, will, will be forced even more to put themselves in the hands of, of smugglers in order to get around those new barriers. They'll put themselves in even more danger. And the only people who profit from this cycle are the people who um, provide security measures, who you know, build fences and manufacture razor wire and, uh, and the rest of it. Uh, they profit at, you know, at the taxpayer's expense, um, but we put those people in terrible harm's way. And we have a duty to, to, to stop that and provide them with safer... We have a duty to provide people who are in need of asylum with safe routes to claim asylum. Yeah, I'd say, I mean... <coughs> Obviously, the argument that the um, that various governments have made is that you know if you 
uh, you know, if, if you, for example, kind of secure people's passage across the Mediterranean or, or, or have boats going around trying to make sure that they save any vessels that, that uh, come into trouble, that that might attract more people. But I, 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 think, I think when it's, it's a, there is a moral obligation when people are, are making such dangerous journeys to try and keep things safe. And I think the way that Mare Nostrum, for example, was wound down, you know, I think that's not... That's not something that's, that should be acceptable in civilised society. You can't just watch people drown. Um, yeah, just um, on that, I think what's interesting um, is that in both, you know, almost everyone accepts that states have some responsibility here to these people making the trip. It's just that some governments define their responsibility as, and you could argue in a self-serving way, perhaps if you wanted, um, that um, they shouldn't help people at sea because it would risk other people coming in that um, um, in those circumstances. So, in some ways, what they were doing in winding down Mare Nostrum was an attempt to say we are being responsible here and um, and <coughs> taking into consideration the plight of these particular individuals. Of course, I think in practice it ended up being a very Weak argument. More and more, more people came after it was wound down. Um, we don't know, how, you know, how many might have come if it had have continued to go on. But I do think it's it's kind of shocking that it was wound down. This government was one of the um, the leaders in, in, in say arguing for it to be wound down. People died because they were not rescued at sea, and. The British government just walks away with no accountability for what happened in terms of those deaths. That seems to me to be a kind of moral gap of the highest order. Yeah, I mean, the numbers doubled after Mare Nostrum was wound down, so I don't think there was any evidence that, that speaking publicly about the fact that they were stopping it had any impact at all. Following up on, on this issue about um, kind of who makes the journey and, uh, and the, the question of Traveling to the territory, um, I wanted to ask. Um, what we have, and we have an interesting situation from a philosophical perspective when you look at asylum policies, which is that um, that governments have have agreed to extend certain rights to to uh, humanitarian protection or refugee status, um, but at the same time they take often take actions to reduce people's ability to make those claims by making it more difficult to. Uh, to get to the territory, and that's been an explicit policy aim. It, it's no secret that governments have, have tried to do this. I, I think it, I mean, it raises a, a larger question about um, why is it that rights only kick in when someone arrives on the territory, and, and do governments have more of an obligation towards a person who has made their own way uh, to the state? Uh, compared to someone who has not been able to make that journey and is, is still, um, you know, has been displaced, uh, for example, uh, within, within the region that they came from? Well, I mean, one of the, I mean, I suppose the major reasons is because the 1951 convention obligation that states have is the duty of non-refoulement, which is a duty not to send back an individual to a place where you know where they would be persecuted, which implies that the state actually is in control of that person, and states are in control of people generally. Not, I mean, not solely, and law is catching up with this fact. But at the borders of their territory. So, um, in a sense, 
the legal responsibilities that states have not to uh, return refugees kick in at the borders. Now, um, there are some ethical questions about, about distributing responsibilities for refugees um, that way. One is that if you're going to say that states are only responsible for those refugees that arrive on their territory, then states that are very close to a refugee crisis are consistently going to be the ones that deal with most of the world's refugees. They're going to be... Um, the kind of responsibility for um, refugees is going to be distributed very unevenly across states. And indeed, around about 80% of the world's refugees are hosted by southern countries and some of the world's um, poorest countries there. So um, you have that as one uh, response. And the second thing you have is the development of very sophisticated non-arrival measures, which you alluded to as well, which mean that it's not just that refugees don't arrive in, say, the UK or France, some do, but there's a whole active process of putting in the way barriers to prevent them ever reaching UK um, territory, which start with um, carrier sanctions, fines on airlines, for uh, fines on airlines and um, other um, carriers for taking people without um, visas, um, but also include all sorts of visa regimes, um, uh, uh, forms of processing of um, entrance in um, other countries and lots of other techniques as well whereby states act there. So what we have is a way of distributing responsibility for um, refugees, but it leads to these kinds of inequalities and problems in the international regime. So we do come to the ethical question of whether, um, whether I suppose, a state should have more responsibility to a refugee who reaches their territory than it does to, say, a refugee just in a camp in, um, in say, another country. And it was a question Theresa May, I think, addressed today as well. Um, um, I mean... Obviously, one can see why the non-reformant principle works in the way it does, in the sense that states, like individual human beings, feel more responsibility for someone on the doorstep of their territory. And they do so partly because, in that context, we feel uniquely responsible for that individual because um, there are not potential claimants in the same way in terms of um, responsibility. But I don't think anyone could say that those that arrive are necessarily more deserving of, um, of, say, asylum than those who don't manage to arrive on the territory of the state. Um, they're just often more lucky. Um, and so, personally, I think that if we were to put in place an alternative system that distributed refugees more fairly amongst states, that created more opportunities for um, asylum, um, that broke the connection between where one arrives and where one claims, and sorry, and where one receives asylum, I would find it difficult to uh, find a compelling ethical objection to that. At the same time, we don't want to do away with the current system because it does some good, but at the same time, um, we can obviously improve on it in the ideal at least. And there's no reason for thinking about ways to improve on it in the ideal. 
Yeah, I want to come back to the issue of, of burden sharing because I think we need a, a, a bigger conversation on that, especially after the, all of the discussions in, in the EU this summer. Uh, Emily and Chris, did you want to um, come in on the, the issue of people on the territory versus in the region? Well, I wanted to, to just, just say in relation to the, the premise of the, the question that there are all these people here who we're doing things for and are they more deserving than people over there? Um, we ought to really you know, take cognizance of the fact that actually, in, in statistical terms, there are just about no people here. Um, if you look at, so if you look at the, the number of people who are refugees and asylum seekers in the UK as a proportion of the population, it is tiny. It's 024 of a percent. So if you, if you remember the, the, the rugby game at Twickenham um, last weekend where, where Matthew's team unfortunately triumphed, um, I think the, 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 there's, there's, there's something like you know, 80,000 people um, in the capacity of Twickenham, and it would be under 200 people would be the total asylum, asylum seeker and refugee population of the UK. So it's simply not true that there are all these people who are doing stuff for over here and neglecting the people over there. Um, so, you know, that, 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 that premise of the question... I mean, so in those terms, the emphasis in Theresa May, May's speech today on, you know, asylum and refugee is completely out of proportion to the statistical reality. Yeah, I mean, I think, I suppose one of the things you have to take into account is there's a sort of basic human decency here that if somebody's on your doorstep, I mean, it's sort of that good Samaritan point, isn't it? If somebody's on your doorstep and they've just risked everything, spent their life savings, risked everything to get themselves to a place of safety, you know, does, is it ethical to turn them away? And I, I just think no. And if, if, it, if it becomes the case that, a, that one particular state has a, has a very unfair burden, then I would absolutely be in favour of finding ways to, share, you know, to share, share people around, even, you know, even if that would be disruptive, and I think it would be for their lives. But I, I can see that there's a case you know, to say, OK, well, you know, Lebanon is... For, if you take Lebanon, for example, say, OK, well, let's try and see if we can move people to other countries and, and spread things out. But I think in that initial stage, there shouldn't ever be a, it shouldn't ever be a case of, no, you can't stay here. I, I, I just don't think that should ever be... One of the options. Yeah, well, on this issue of... Um, I mean, you've, you've raised a couple of, of important points. I mean, firstly, there's a question of whether, whether refugees should be seen as having a moral right to seek asylum in a particular place or whether it's enough that they should be uh, given a safe haven from, from the place that they are, are fleeing from. And, and then I think that, you know, there's the secondary question of if we are going to have a system of burden sharing, um, what... Um, you know, how would you decide what the fair shares are for different countries? What should be the criteria? And there's been a lot of criticism over the summer and for years before that of the, the arrangements that are currently in place in the European <coughs> Union. Um, so you know, what, what would make sense in terms of a, a fair regime in that respect? Well, we, I mean, we could talk about all kinds of possible criteria. We can talk about you know, the GDP, the population of different countries, the population density, and so on. If we're talking in terms of a fair distribution among EU countries, then you know, that, that really is... Um, uh, deck chairs and the Titanic's the wrong kind of metaphor here. But when we compare to 
the, the burden faced by countries like Pakistan, like Turkey, Lebanon, Jordan, and so on, um, for EU countries to argue amongst themselves um, about numbers is, you know, when, when 86% of the world's refugees are in uh, developing countries, I mean, that just seems, there's, there's something that seems rather kind of inapposite uh, about that. Um, and the other thing I'd say, I think, is that it can't be that our duty to refugees is in any way conditional on the willingness of others to you know, do their bit. Um, there will always be you know, others who are unwilling to do their bit, um, and we can't have a situation where states step back and are unwilling to respond to those in genuine need um, just because other states are behaving badly because that just leads to a situation where all states stand back and, and do nothing for refugees, as happened in the 1930s, effectively. Matthew, you wanted to come in there? Um, yeah, though Chris has said uh, at least um, some of it. I mean, I think it is interesting in the realm of um, burden sharing. I mean, I do think that it is starting to make sense in Europe, and it's, it's true there. Um, very uh, Lots of refugees in um, d developing countries, but numbers have been growing in Europe, so Germany, I think, has a very strong claim and is pushing that claim for uh, better burden-sharing arrangements in Europe. The, um, and, um, and it is amazing how, as soon as countries get large numbers of refugees, they suddenly see the importance of the moral importance of just schemes for distributing refugees. So um, I think that tells us uh, something in and um, of itself. Um, I think on this question of um, refugees choosing their own countries, um, I, mean, I mean, there is a widespread view, I suppose, that comes through in the media that there is something illegitimate about refugees making that choice, that all they're owed is really basic security, um, a decent place to be, even if that's, in some cases, just a refugee camp. And any refugee that goes beyond that and then searches out a particular country is somehow either not a refugee or, um, or at least in some ways not a good refugee in our perception. Um, but I think this is to misunderstand what it is to be a refugee, really, because I think part of what it is to be a refugee is to lose the basic security provided by rights that one would hope a basic state does. But it's also to lose one's social world, the, the kind of very context in which one forms one's identity, um, the sets of associations, relationships, friends, and perhaps other cultural aspects of one's life um, that are so that so integrally attaches to particular places. And so I don't think it's surprising at all in that context that um, refugees tend to make decisions, as well as trying to get away, they, make that, that, they often make that first decision, but the second one is um, often, where can I make a life? Where will I be able to rebuild my social world? Where will I be able to flourish? What country will kind of... Uh, recognise my skills, what country has my compatriots in it, is that country close to where I was before, does it kind of, if, you know, if I'm fleeing because of persecution on the grounds of sexuality, is it a more tolerant place? And these are perfectly legitimate decisions 
for um, refugees to make, and they go beyond this question of this first step in the asylum process, and we need to recognise that. I don't necessarily believe that um, these decisions that refugees have should trump all questions of um, how to distribute refugees between states. If we can have a system where uh, more uh, refugees receive protection, we may have to just ignore at least some of those decisions. But we should at least try to accommodate the choices that refugees make on where they want to live into the decision-making process. Try to accommodate it with perhaps you know, side payments to various states to, um, who get more refugees than um, others, or perhaps building in a kind of element of choice. And one of the reasons why we should, apart from that moral reason of trying to compensate refugees for the loss that they've felt, is um, connected to this idea of um, enabling people who have had a lot of choices taking, um, taken away from them to have some kind of choice in their destiny as well. Yeah, I mean, I think um, in terms of... Of, of sort of criteria that you could have. I think, I think, for example, family ties is a really important one. You know, um, I know that, uh, you know, I, I happen to know uh, a Syrian refugee who was trying to bring his mother um, to, to be with him in the UK for, for many years, um, and he was trying to bring her over legally. And in the end, he had to resort to uh, smuggling her through... Well, she had to go across the Mediterranean in a scary way, and she... Uh, ended up coming to Britain in the hollowed out underneath of an estate car. Um, and, you know, a lot of money went to smugglers during that. It was a very traumatic and difficult time for them. Um, and I think, I think there should be, there should be a, a right to try and keep families, keep families together, for example. But, but I think in a broader sense, this burden-sharing issue does need to be addressed because otherwise, although, although I think it's, it's important that people can choose up to a point where they go... We need to share it. We need to make sure that some countries don't end up with, with all the refugees and others with none. So, um, I'd like to open up uh, the floor for questions one more time. Do we have questions here on the left? Hi, my name is Kikali, and I study here. I study IR, and um, I wanted to ask about integration. Uh, you brought up an interesting point about um, how in Lincolnshire it was completely different to London. And although they're the same country, um, you know, you, you get disparities between um, the tolerance of people. And is that down to education? Is it an economic difference? And I wanted to know your thoughts on how um, you can get people to be more tolerant of migrants everywhere. Okay. And just here behind you, um, yep. Hi, my name's Andrea. I come from New York University. And, well, we've brought out the question about how the state has the legal legitimacy and the, it has sovereignty to um, protect the social contract. And sometimes there are threats to the state or there are threats to the social fabric. Maybe there will be widespread instability and the state should protect people from those things. But we also talked about how um, perceptions vary from place to place, and we talked about how in many places there may be benefits from migration, but people feel very strongly against migration. 
And perhaps that threat that we brought up in the first place is just something that we're imagining or something we're uh, focusing too much and without seeing the benefits of migration. So I wanted to ask you um, if we could come back to this idea of where the limit is and where society needs uh, to be protected from the state or where perhaps society is imposing on the state a threshold that is actually something that they're making up and migration is a right or is not a right, but what we think of as a right is not um, what we should. Interesting. So I think we have um, get to two questions actually on a somewhat similar theme in terms of, kind of is the is the threat imagined? Uh, do, does I mean maybe one could phrase it as kind of does the public have a right to feel threatened by migration? And and this comes back to some of the things we discussed earlier about the kind of the role of public opinion and uh, and democracy. Does anyone want to come in on your solutions here? I mean, just in answer to the first question, um, I think the kind of the you know comparing Lincolnshire to London and why that why that sort of why there is this big gap in attitudes. And I think you're right. I think education plays a part. You know, there's a big mistrust of change, and, and some of it's that less has changed in that, that, that part of Britain. So, you know, London, for such a long time, for as, you know, centuries, has, has always welcomed, you know, has welcomed people, and, and, you know, and indeed people that live here celebrate the fact that it's full of people from around the world. Um, whereas, uh, you know, I suppose sometimes the further away you get from big cities, it often is the case that you you get this kind of much more isolated isolated view. Um, and and you know, so some of that some of that's also cultural. So you know, pe- perhaps they identify much more strongly with the culture of how their local how their town has been for for decades and decades. The shoe shop's always been the same, even though it might now be shut and the high street's really depressing. At least it stayed the same. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I think that that can be kind of part of it. So, um, but yeah, I think. And I think actually it comes back to what we were saying about politicians as well, that there can be some moral leadership here, that you know, if, if, if we had politicians um, and perhaps more people in the media as well talking positively about what's, what contribution that, that migrants are making and you know, take, taking a bit of leadership on that, that that would help too. Do you want to come in there? Um, well, it's in the nature of politics that people judge threats differently, I suppose, and we all have different um, uh, judgments of what is a threat. And also, there's different, you know, differential impacts of migration across different communities as well. So you're going to um, have that. Um, I think that's just what, as I said, what politics is about to a certain extent, and one can. Um, use the best empirical evidence one can find here, but even then empirical social scientists disagree with it. I just find it implausible that, uh, say, a country like uh, the UK will be at death's door if it takes, you know, 20, 30, 40,000 refugees, and I haven't heard a very strong argument that it will be there. If, you know, if these threats are plausible from um, migration, we want leaders to make uh, the case for them in a way that um, is plausible and convincing and based on, um, I suppose, empirical evidence, and I'm just not seeing that. So I I come back round to the point that I think that one of the things we want out of our political leaders is to give us an accurate account, a convincing account of of, um, 
why we should trust their way ahead rather than another way ahead. And I haven't seen it in the realm of migration. Chris, you will have the final word. Okay, well, I'd like to draw a parallel in that case between um, anxiety about immigration and uh, another um, bit of anxiety that's been in the news recently, which is anxiety about gentrification. So people do feel anxious about different new people coming to live in their neighbourhood. Of course, they have a right to feel anxious, but there are definitely limits, in my view, about the extent to which they're entitled to rely upon coercion and the coercive force of the state in trying to to stop that from happening or managing that process. Um, Just because people who are unfamiliar to you have different languages, different habits, um, are willing to buy cereal at expensive prices or whatever, want to live in, or students want to live in your neighbourhood, that doesn't mean you're entitled to use force to stop them from doing so. Interesting. Well, I would love to continue this discussion because there are so many things that we could uh, we could still talk about. But um, I'm afraid I will have to uh, draw it to a close. Um, it's, I, I won't try and um, do the 30-second summary because this has been such a wide-ranging conversation. Um, you know, it's clear that the the circum- individual circumstances and the policy issues are extraordinarily complex. There's a whole range of different trade-offs that, uh, that governments face, um, a lot of un- empirical uncertainty about what the impacts of, of certain actions will be. Um, so I will just uh, close by saying thank you so much, and please join me in thanking the, the panellists.